First Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison. To those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you as well. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. The word of the Lord. Peter is the master of the run-on sentence rivaled only by Paul, and he really gets his money's worth here. Uh, he wraps a lot of things into this little passage we're going to look at today. We get an esoteric theological construct, an object lesson, a historical reflection, an explanation of a symbolic ritual, and it's all sandwiched in between a Christological uh, formation. And so for the low price of an hour and 45 minutes on Sunday, we got all that. Um, and as a bonus, we've actually come on this passage uh, that many commentators call this passage the most difficult exegetical problem in the entire New Testament. Uh, it's, we're not going to get into all that, but we'll see where we go. So all that to say, the captain has turned on the buckle your seatbelt signs. Uh, we joined this passage mid-sentence and mid-discourse, and we're already in the middle of the turbulence. And Peter, as he's preaching this as he's sharing this word through this letter to, to the church. Uh, he is speaking to people who are persecuted and who are suffering. And the letter as a whole returns the audiences, our perception of, of suffering and oppression and what that means uh, for us as Christians. And so before we dig in, I actually want to uh, just lead us in... Uh, just sharing in a moment of silence, uh, many churches across the world are, share, are doing this today uh, in honor of last week, last Sunday, uh, the Islamic State uh, beheaded 21 Coptic Christians, uh, or the Egyptian Church of Christ. And um, just to remember and honor, and they've, I mean, they've killed hundreds and thousands of Christians over the course of the last couple of years, but um, or the last year, I guess, geez. Um, but so we just want to take a moment to, to kind of center on that, to honor them, and then to launch into how we deal with suffering in the world. First, Peter invites us into a story of a church that is scattered and strained and oppressed. He begins by speaking to, this letter was copied and sent all over the place. It's addressed to people from you know, many different nations and many different areas. Uh, and that they were looked down on by society as a whole. And just to contextualize the passage, we kind of need to sum up some of the things that Peter's already covered. Uh, in chapter 1, he makes it clear that trials of any kind have arrived and have come upon the church uh, to refine and to prove their faith. Uh, he says, you know, your faith, your faith is worth more than gold, and like gold it must be refined and purified. Uh, and that that process of understanding what our faith is in uh, gives us a sense of what Peter calls inexpressible and glorious joy. 
joy that no matter what happens to our earthly life, we are secured and blessed by our Heavenly Father. Uh, and not only that, but as each one of us experiences faith alone, uh, we are called to be united as a people and as a family. Uh, Peter writes that uh, these people, are, to the people who are dispersed and very diverse and uh, have their own heritage, he highlights and says, uh, you were once not a people group at all, but now you are the people of God. Once you were outside God's mercy, but now you are recipients of mercy together. Peter weaves a reflection of Christ's suffering throughout his writing, and he clearly announces it here in verse 18, uh, that Christ suffered and died to bring us close to God, uh, despite physical death, made alive in the Spirit. And though we still all experience and will experience physical death ourselves, uh, there is a transcendent and essential difference in the life that we live. Christ proclaimed that he came to bring life to the full to all those who would follow him. And that's not a life of all ups, but it's the ups and downs of life reborn with a spiritual reality. And earlier in this chapter, verse 15, Peter expresses that everyone ought to be ready to give an answer for the hope that we have and uh, be full of gentleness and respect and how they answer those. And I've heard that passage used as a kind of an evangelism tool or a training on how to share your faith, but it is actually specifically geared towards how you answer when you are suffering. The answer of hope that you give is what happens when you face difficult circumstances and need to be resilient. Uh, what happens when, in the spiritual life, when suffering comes and when persecution hits? When men, women, and children are slaughtered and beheaded, uh, our hope is not found in military might or vengeance or earthly material comforts. Uh, we are prepared by the Spirit to answer that our hope is found in our salvation, our story that has led us through God's story of inconvenient and long-suffering love and compassion, seeking justice against all odds. Verse 18 brings us face to face with the gospel for what it means to be a Christian. Christ suffered once for the sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Whenever we suffer a wrong, whenever we face injustice, whenever we experience the fallenness of this world, either in our inner journey or in our outer journey, we return to this for refreshment. This is our touchstone and our life. In Christ, our lives remain intact when we are broken and fractured and beaten down. It is the wellspring of life. And let's go to the next one. Oh, hey, it works. All right. Um, from that proclamation, uh, Peter moves into a little bit murkier water, and it gets a little bit interesting. And, uh, you know, I should have looked up what the BIC's position is on verses 19 and 20, but I didn't. So... Uh, we're just going to go with that. The Apostles' Creed, many of you may be familiar with that, one of the earliest church creeds, uh, 
talks about this passage specifically. It almost goes out of its way to say that Jesus kind of, in between when he died and when he was resurrected, he went down into hell and did a victory lap and then came back. And a lot of people believe that, and that's what the Apostles' Creed says, and it's just a little troubling to me. I'm not sure what to make of it or what the significance of it is, actually. And for me, I take a little bit more simple approach to it, that um, when it talks about the spirits who were disobedient and the preaching, those were all back then, and the imprisonment is the only thing that's now. And essentially, you take kind of a prophetic view of what the spirit of Christ preaching is. Um, I've talked to a lot of people about how to read the Bible and how they approach it, especially people that are reading the Bible for the first time. I've done some work with, uh, with you know, young people or just people that have never experienced the Bible before. And they, a lot of them ask me, you know, how should I read the Bible? What should I do? You know, they're really excited to get into it. And I tell them the first thing is just don't read it from start to finish all the way through. Because Adam and Eve is a great place to start, but after that it gets weird. It gets really strange and it's very gruesome and, and crazy and, um, you know, read that eventually, but don't start there. Um, and particularly in a world where, you know, what we get a lot of times is just broadcasted single verses as kind of slogans or platitudes and... Verses 19 and 20 kind of springboards us into that weird part of the Bible. Uh, and yet, a part that's very common to us because many of us were taught it as children, which is also really weird that we would take this story of a genocidal flood and kind of put a spin on it, which is very dissonant to me, that this is an okay story for kids. Uh, it's very off-putting, actually, when you read Genesis like 5 through 9. Um, and so we want to join Peter, verses 19 and 20, he's going back to this time of the flood, the time of Noah, uh, and revisit that and try to stand, step, just step around the pictures of animals walking onto a boat and turtle doves and rainbows and everything's going to be all right. Just, just sidestep that for a minute and let's look at this story again because Something happened there. The Spirit of Christ was present amongst people that were disobedient, like, like all of us, and who needed God, and who were created by God for a purpose and had rebelled against it. The, fl the flood is the story of God's prophetic voice colliding with a dying and murderous world. Um, and it really starts in Genesis 5, uh, Genesis 5 is a genealogy. Most people just skip it. Uh, but it's the story of the people of Seth, uh, which is God's chosen line. Uh, Cain, you know, Adam had three son noteworthy sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth. Cain rebelled, killed Abel, and then had Seth. And Seth is the, the good line. And the ones who followed God in that time. And uh, one of Seth's descendants is a man named Enoch. Uh, Enoch is famous for uh, being taken up into heaven without dying. And Enoch's name means dedicated. Uh, he was the first prophet. And 
he proclaimed God's truth to the people of the earth that had turned against God and God's plan for the world. And he is a prophet, and so he, uh, I, I believe he passed that down, that you know, his line from then on was prophets. Methuselah is his son, and he was probably a prophet. And Methuselah, even if he wasn't a prophet, he had a prophetic name. Methuselah means when he dies, it will come which is pretty eerie, pretty eerie name to, to call somebody. Um, and then his grandson was Noah, and Noah was a prophet, and Noah means comfort, and that's spelled out for us. Uh, Noah's father said that uh, in Noah's lifetime, he would bring comfort and peace to the cursed earth. And the Spirit of Christ empowered these prophets of old to proclaim forgiveness and repentance to a self-destructing world. Uh, another kind of theological gymnastics exercise is, you know, you ask, who are the spirits? Are they fallen angels? Are they people? And the answer is probably both, um, because we read in Genesis 6, it talks about how the sons of God and the Nephilim and these kind of supernatural sounding creatures were kind of wreaking havoc and, and raising hell on earth. And then in chapter, in chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the whole human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. Which is very disheartening and very sad. Um, and it's really in that moment that you realize what the prophets were up against, what they faced. Um, and the Spirit of Christ preaches redemption in the midst of chaos and anarchy uh, through the prophets God has appointed. And Peter points us to the fact that God was patient. It says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah. And God was compassionate and just when people, the entire world, turned against him. It was a message of evacuation rather than the good news of victory. And for hundreds of years, prophets labored to turn the lost back to their creator, the God of love. And here, Peter transitions us into, he talks about the ark being built into this object lesson that in many ways, Christ is like the ark, the means of our salvation amidst oppression and persecution. He suffered and died to deliver us to God, to escape certain doom and to answer hopefully to a dying world. And uh, the title of this message was actually provided to me by Pastor Jeff. It's called The Shape of Our Redemption, which I think is right there. Yeah. And I don't really know what that means. So, <laughs> um, but I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I did think about, though, uh, about a year ago, I think we had a project here where we uh, restored a bicycle. And just a side note, that came out of Jeff and Mai's conversations and meetings during the week. Uh, we meet every week and talk, and uh, that was my idea. But my original pitch was that we should build a boat 
here in the shared space out of wood. Um, any NCIS fans, fans will, will understand that a little bit more, but I just thought it would be neat. And so I thought about this passage about the ark and maybe the shape of our redemption is like boat shaped. I don't know. That's all, that's, that's the only sense I could really make out of that. Um, in any case, our redemption is being built by the words of the prophets to extend God's grace into the fallen and rebellious creation. And not only does Peter love run-on sentences, he also loves kind of mixed up metaphors. And so he jumps from the ark into the water and uh, here he turns to that. Christ is like the ark, the water, like baptism, uh, like spiritual death and our symbol of transformation. Uh, he kind of, I mean, if you were trying to listen to just this message being preached, you'd kind of, your head would be spinning after a little bit. But um, baptism, the symbol of our transformation, we pass through the water as individuals called into a new world, a new life, reborn, a symbol of the rich and ritual of the spiritual work of Christ. And this is probably a subject that's pretty close to Peter's heart. And so I think he just, he probably wrote other letters and he would always try to like sneak it in and just say, and this is like baptism, because uh, if you recall to John 13, when Jesus took the servant's seat and chose to wash the uh, apostles' feet, verse 6, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Verse 9, then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. I feel like writing this letter is Peter's understand later moment. Uh, that he understands that washing, ceremonial washing, and this new baptism uh, is symbolic of our pledge to trust God and that the transformation comes through Christ's resurrection. Baptism does not actually, it's not for physical cleaning, but it reminds us of the perils of this world and of the abundant love that God purifies us and our motives and our actions with. And verse 22 uh, kind of wraps this passage up uh, to present the anticipated and already uh, future that Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. Previously in this chapter, verse 15, Peter had, uh, had told the believers that they were being persecuted. He said, when persecution comes, when injustice comes, when suffering comes, don't be afraid, but set aside Christ as Lord in your hearts. That is why we hope. That is why we persevere. And why we answer with gentleness and respect amidst suffering, because Christ is truly Lord, as Christ is seen here reigning over all, all creation. And I think that for me, we have this promise that, that Christ is truly Lord, and also the command to set him aside as Lord in our hearts. 
And that process, that internal journey, that setting aside of Christ as Lord in our hearts is what our Lenten journey is all about. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And we often fast for a season, uh, using Lent as a time to stop consuming one particular thing or another, or to start doing one particular thing or another. And sometimes it's literal fasting. And I, we, we often call these omissions and commitments uh, sacrifices. And I think that that word is in sore need of retooling, that the only sacrifice of Lent is Christ. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The sacrifice of Christ does not point us to footnoted changes in our diet, but to inconvenience and overwhelming passion for the redemption of the world. And as Pope Francis proclaimed in his 2015 Lenten address, uh, indifference to our neighbor and to God represents a real temptation for Christians. Each year during Lent, we need to hear once more the voice of the prophets who cry out and trouble our conscience. So fast not from meat or gluten or complaining or inactivity. Uh, Give up indifference. Give up passive resistance to the Spirit of Christ. Give up resistance to new and transformative paths of redemption things that we have never experienced, that that God is calling us to further our story, give up the resistance to being thrown by the Spirit from our inner spiritual journey to a radical and uncomfortable outer journey in the suffering footsteps of Christ our Lord.